Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke and chapter 6 as we begin this chapter, continuing in uh, Jesus' Galilean ministry, his ministry in the northern part of his home country of Israel. And as he spent some time, this is one of the many uh, events that took place in his ministry there, a pivotal one as opposition to Jesus has been building now for some time and culminates in the response to what he does on two occasions described here in this text. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. We'll read these verses all before we begin. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus, answering them, said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it. After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Have you ever laid down in bed to take a nice weekend nap and all of a sudden, something happens. A knock at the door. Somebody has a need. A child has something happen to them. There's an injury or just anything that could possibly take place that would interrupt your rest. Sometimes this happens and we don't always get thrilled by the occasion. But the reality is, sometimes what's intended to be restful turns out to not be restful at all. Now, we have an opportunity in those moments to respond to those in ways that are honoring to the Lord or not. And sometimes we fail that test. But here is an occasion where a day, really two separate days that were supposed to be restful, turned out instead to actually be quite controversial and even pivotal in the ministry of Jesus. He was doing something on the Sabbath and his disciples were doing something on the Sabbath designed to be a day of rest. And then that rest or that normal Sabbath day was interrupted by some people who were hostile to him. And rather than become resentful or bitter against that, he leaned into the controversy instead and used the opportunity to teach them and all the people around him who he really was. He used the occasion to do something that really needed to be done anyway, which is to proclaim his unique greatness, to show that he is Lord even over some 
something as great and important in Israel's life as the Sabbath day itself. And this is a message that they needed to hear because it would have been very easy for them to think that Jesus is just another religious teacher. And I don't just mean any teacher of any old religion out there, but just another religious teacher in the line of all the ones that had come before. And we looked at this last time we were in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5 when they were trying to tell Jesus that his disciples and he really should be practicing the same type of religious ritual as the Pharisees and as the disciples of John the Baptist. They said, why don't they fast like we fast? Why don't we fast and offer prayers? Jesus, why are your disciples doing something different? And Jesus says, in essence, if you understood who I was, you would realize that I'm different from all the people that went before. And accordingly, the practice of religion that surrounds me is not going to be the same as what happened previously. Jesus does come from the stream of Old Testament teachers because he comes from God and he, like them, speaks prophetic truth. But Jesus is also very different because he is the Christ. He is Lord. He is the God-man. And he's not just like the people that came before. And if you fail to understand this distinction, then you're going to misunderstand who he is entirely. So Jesus says, I'm like a new wine that needs new wineskins to be put into. Or I'm like a new piece of clothing that doesn't need to be have some of it cut out and matched with the old. I'm something entirely new. And so it is here when we come to this text where Jesus interacts with these people on the Sabbath day that people's failure to understand how Jesus is different than anyone who has gone before or who would ever come after, their failure to understand that is what drives them to criticize his practice concerning the Sabbath. They don't understand that Jesus is superior not only to any other prophet, but even to the institutions themselves that God has ordained. Jesus doesn't come to contradict what God has laid out previously. He doesn't come to say that the Sabbath was worthless or that it meant nothing or that people shouldn't have been practicing it at the time. But he does come to show that he is the Lord of all. And that if you're more concerned with the rituals that were laid down, even Old Testament rituals, than you are with understanding and responding to who Jesus is, then you have missed the point entirely. And you don't understand who he is. And on top of that, you will not find the salvation that he provides. Jesus is unique. He is different. He's not like anyone or anything else that came before. And the Sabbath serves then as sort of a flashpoint, as a, as a divide that then shows which side of that are you on. Are you on the side of understanding and responding to who Jesus really is? Or are you going to miss the point and miss salvation? So all of this happens on this day that God has ordained to be set apart and special, the Sabbath day. And we find this in verse 1 where he says it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. This clearly is uh, the background, the Sabbath, to the events that are taking place here. Verse 1 speaks about how it happened on the Sabbath. And then verse 6, on another Sabbath. And really the language of the text, the underlying grammar of this indicates that there is something here that is intended to just draw attention to the fact that the Sabbath is the main point of contention. And yet Jesus uses that and he takes it one step further and says, let me tell you what the way that I treat the Sabbath has to do with who I am and what you need to understand about me. So this is about the Sabbath and it's about how he relates to it. Now, just to understand a little bit of background about the Sabbath biblically, uh, you may be very familiar with this, but the Sabbath day is something that, uh, that has its roots from the very beginning of creation. 
In Genesis chapter 1, we read a description of God creating everything in six days. And then Genesis chapter 2 tells us that he rested on the seventh day. And he set apart that day and made it holy because on that day he rested from his creation and from all the work which he had made. When we get to the book of Exodus and Israel has made its way out of Egypt and they're on their way to Mount Sinai and then to the promised land. In Exodus 16, we have some initial Sabbath instructions where God tells them, don't gather any manna on the Sabbath day. It's going to be out there. Like, don't go looking for it, but don't go gather it. Uh, Don't do it on the Sabbath day. Instead, on the sixth day of the week, you're going to be able to gather twice as much. So you'll have provision waiting for you on the seventh day without having to do any work. Then, and you can turn here and read along with me, in the book of Exodus in chapter 20, God speaks the Ten Commandments directly to Israel from Mount Sinai. And the fourth commandment concerns the Sabbath day. And he says this in verse 8. Uh, Through 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Why? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Note that the entire household was to rest, not just the head of the household, the man of the house, but also the kids, also the servants, also even the animals and the guests. They were all to have a day of work. This wasn't a day where you kicked back and the people that served you did everything for you. This was a day of rest for everyone. And as such, it was a gift of God to people who normally would be working every single day. Now, later on in the giving of the law... Moses gets further instructions about the Sabbath uh, in chapter 31 of Exodus in verses 12 through 17. He expands upon this and he notes the special place and the unique function that this would have as Israel had this instruction alone among the nations to keep the Sabbath in this way. And he says in verse 12, But the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people." For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. So just as Abraham was given the sign of circumcision as a sign of God's covenant promises to him, so the Sabbath was given to Israel as a sign of the covenant that was made with them at Mount Sinai through Moses, the Mosaic covenant. This was a sign for them and they were to keep this diligently and with great consequences if they were to violate it. As you saw, literally it would call upon someone the death penalty if they were to violate this. They knew better and to do so would be completely to rebel against God. Now, for a long time, Israel did not practice this 
faithfully. Um, in fact, it was part of their guilt that led them to be carried off into exile hundreds of years later. They didn't keep the Sabbath day the way that it was supposed to. They didn't rest. They mistreated it. They mistreated people on the Sabbath, and they saw it as just another day. But when they returned from exile some 500 years or so before Christ came to the earth, they began to faithfully follow things like this. They purged idolatry, and then they began to faithfully follow the Sabbath. So that by the time Jesus shows up on earth, they're very fastidious about keeping the Sabbath. So the Sabbath day was not just a day that was set apart itself for Israel, but it also functioned to keep Israel as set apart among the nations. If you said, what is Israel characterized by? Like when you went to visit Israel, what was it like? One of the first things that they would have noted if they came back home and reported to Babylon or to Rome or wherever would be, well, they don't work on the seventh day of the week. They all rest. They all practice this Sabbath day. It would have been very obvious to outsiders as well as insiders. And in fact, foreign knowledge of this Jewish practice, um, including Jewish forms of Sabbath keeping that went beyond what Scripture commanded, uh, have even been used against them at various points in their history by things like military attacks being strategically scheduled on the Sabbath day. In fact, there were points in Israel's history where they wouldn't even fight back on the Sabbath day, uh, much less be ready for it, or uh, not to mention that they weren't ready for it even if they were willing to fight back because they would be practicing the things that they would normally be doing on the Sabbath. So this was used against them, for example, in the time between the Old and the New Testament when the Jews didn't even resist military opposition on the Sabbath day for a time until the Jewish leader Mattathias decided that that practice can't really continue and we need to make a change and actually fight back. And then, of course, many of you know that uh, even in Israel's modern stages, even now the nation practices this and um, that not even four months ago, a surprise attack was performed against the modern state of Israel on the Sabbath day in the latest rounds of hostilities between Hamas and the modern state of Israel. That is to say, for 2,500 years since the return from exile, it's been a hallmark of Jewish life, and Jesus' time was no exception. Now, the New Testament makes it very clear that the Sabbath as a commandment is not a universal binding institution, even for, and maybe especially for, Christian believers. So, for example, we read in Romans 14, verse 5, when Paul says this to the Romans, uh, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. He doesn't say, you're wrong and you're right. He says, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He's saying that one person has a conscience conviction, I need to practice the Sabbath day. I'm a Jewish Christian. This has been my heritage. I'm not trying to earn merit with God for this. But, um, but I'm got, I've got to be fully convinced that this is what I need to do. And then the other person needs to make sure when he's not practicing the Sabbath that he has every right to not practice it and that he doesn't have a conscience qualm about it. But the point is, Paul says, it's not a matter of this is right for everybody. No one has to practice the Sabbath. In fact, he takes it further. He says in Colossians 2.16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. That is, Colossians, if you choose, as he, they had been instructed, not to practice the Sabbath as Gentile believers, don't let anybody tell you that you're violating God's law. That's not reality. Make sure that no one stands and acts as your judge. Don't let that be the case. 
He takes it even further, and Paul himself says, for Christians who are not from a Jewish background, uh, and if they wanted to practice the Sabbath day as prescribed in the law of Moses, this was actually a big red flag for Paul. It made him really worried about whether they actually believed in and trusted Christ for righteousness rather than trying to earn their own way through the law because it indicated that they weren't trusting in God's sufficient provision of the work of Christ and of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life and instead that they thought they had to go to the law of Moses. So he says this in Galatians 4 verses 10 and 11. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. He saw Gentile Christians, people who didn't come from a Jewish background, he saw them practicing the Jewish Sabbath as a sign that they might not be believers and that his gospel efforts were in vain. This is how seriously he understood that Christians who, uh, who did not grow up in this Jewish background and weren't of this national heritage, for them to then begin to adopt any of these practices from the Mosaic law would be an indication. We're going back to that. We think we have to do the law. And he says, no, this contradicts faith in Christ, and you're not to go there. So a weekly day off is not commanded, and we should never practice such a thing, whether on the seventh day or another day, as something that is a binding obligation upon us. That said, it's not a bad practice to follow. To take a, re a weekly, regular day off from work, uh, as long as you know that this is not an explicit commandment, um, but for Israel it was, and they took it really seriously. And in fact, we might be tempted to say that they took it too seriously, although that's not really the case. It wasn't that they took it too seriously, it's that they twisted what it was for. They took it seriously, but they took it wrongly. And in some senses, they didn't take it seriously enough because they didn't do it God's way. They applied it in ways that it wasn't meant to be applied. But where they failed was, not in failing to take God's commandment seriously, but instead it was where they placed the Sabbath in their larger theology. They had begun to treat the Sabbath as one more set of things to accomplish, one more thing that they had to do to keep this practice and this practice and this practice, and that they would do anything to accomplish things according to the law so that they might be found to have the righteousness that you get through doing things rather than trusting in the Savior. Uh, what was then given for the purpose of refreshment, especially for people who didn't have the, uh, the influence to decide whether they got to rest, actually then turned out to be a burden. And this was largely the result of teaching that came from people like the Pharisees. And so what began as a day of blessed rest and as a distinguishing sign of the nation devolved into a burdensome ritual that in many ways became more of a curse than a blessing. And so their larger theology was mistaken in the way they related the Sabbath to that. But even more than that, when Jesus shows up on the scene, the error that they made was where they placed the Sabbath into their Christology, into their doctrine of Christ. That is, they didn't understand how he related to the Sabbath. They didn't understand that something is more important than the day. And Jesus has come to show them that there are things that are bigger than the Sabbath. And those things really are him. His practice, what he commands to be done, and he himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. This is a message then that is the breaking point for the Pharisees' tolerance of him. They want nothing to do with him anymore after this. They want him gone. But it's a message that we must embrace if we're going to understand and respond in a saving way to Jesus Christ. 
So as we consider this Sabbath unrest, we want to consider two events that take place on Sabbath days that show us who Jesus really is and how we are to think about this institution of the Sabbath so as to illustrate Jesus' greatness. Uh, The first event that happens is in verses 1 through 5. And here we find that Jesus defeats the Pharisees' objection. Jesus defeats the Pharisees' objection. And their objection is to working on the Sabbath. Verses 1 and 2, they have an objection to working on the Sabbath. And so Luke says it happened. He was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath. His disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. So the disciples are doing this. Why are they doing this? Do they want to just flaunt their freedom to do this before the Pharisees? Are they just eager to go and cause trouble? No, they were doing this because the parallel passage in Matthew 12, 1 says the very complicated reason that they were hungry. They were hungry. Very simple. They're hungry, so they eat. Now, they're passing through grain fields that presumably belong to someone else, but this in Israel was legal to do. Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, allowed for things like this. You couldn't go and harvest someone else's field, but you could take some of the grain, just pick it by hand like what they were doing, and you could eat it if you were hungry. So it wasn't stealing or anything like that. But the Pharisees had a problem on the timing. They were doing this on the Sabbath. And some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They were making an accusation that these people were sinning against the Mosaic law. They were doing so because they were working, by the Pharisees' definition, on the Sabbath. The problem is not so much with the eating of food on the Sabbath, which everyone did, even Israel in Exodus 16, who wasn't supposed to get manna on the Sabbath, was still allowed to eat manna on the Sabbath. The problem is with the working, with the picking, in order to eat. So how is Jesus going to respond to this? What is his answer to this? He clearly himself is not telling them that what they're doing is wrong. So what is he going to say to the Pharisees to defend their actions? Well, let's look at Jesus' answers about the Sabbath. What does he say? What does Jesus answer them about the Sabbath? He says in verse 3, Have you not even read? Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone, and gave it to his companions. The first thing that Jesus tells the Pharisees is, there is something bigger than Sabbath keeping. There's something bigger than Sabbath keeping. Jesus asked them, have you not even read? And he is referring to a passage you may be familiar with in 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is in the middle of the time when Saul is chasing David. This seemed to happen over and over again. David is on the run from Saul. And he shows up to the tabernacle and speaks to the high priest Ahimelech. And he says, can we have some food? Me and these men who are with me. And the priest says, well, the only bread we have, the only food we have is the stuff that's been removed from being the bread of the presence before the Lord in the tabernacle. But you can't eat that. That's, that's the stuff that belongs to the priests, only for the priests. But David persuades him and uh, he convinces him to give this to him. So David gets the food and then he distributes it to the men who were with him. <clears throat> Now, kind of as a foundation to this, we note here that Jesus has not done this in a little while, but he goes back to the reliable source of authority. You may remember this from chapter 4, where Satan tempted Jesus, and what did he say? It is written. It has been said. It is written. 
Here, Jesus does the same thing, and he goes back to existing scripture. And he throws down with them, and he says, you're accusing me of something, but haven't you read this passage? Now, this is a really insulting question to the Pharisees, isn't it? You're a Pharisee, you're a teacher of the law, and they're saying, have we read? What do you mean? You're the one whose disciples are eating the stuff on the Sabbath. Haven't you read this, Jesus? But he asked them, haven't you even read this? The Pharisees are the Bible scholars. They would have been very familiar with the Bible, and they most definitely would have read this passage. They would have been able to recount for you a summary of what took place. They may have even had the section memorized. So the odds are in favor of, yes, we have read this. They know what it says. But, of course, Jesus is saying something else by this, isn't he? When he says, haven't you read, what he's saying is, if you really were an insightful Bible scholar and a reliable teacher then you would have realized that this passage has an application to the situation that you're now condemning. And that what David did in that section actually shows that what we're doing is not a problem. You would not have accused us of sin. Jesus highlights something here in the text. He does something very interesting. Look at what he says in verse 2. Some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is what? Not lawful. Jesus, taking this passage from 1 Samuel 21, David getting the bread, in verse 4 he says he ate the consecrated bread which is what? Not lawful. Not lawful. Now I want you to think about this carefully because this is uh, is a point that might be easy to miss. The Pharisees were overly strict in their application of the law. If you've read the New Testament, you know this. They strain out a gnat and they swallow a camel. They neglect the weightier matters of the law. They focus on the minutia, the things that aren't even really in the law, and then they add those to people. They add burdens that they shouldn't make them bear. And then not only that, but they also focus on the less weighty matters of the law in favor of the weightier matters or to the neglect of the weightier matters of the law. They get all of that messed up. They added too many rules. They had all their prescriptions for why you shouldn't do this or that. And even here, they probably are going too far to say you shouldn't be taking this grain and eating it on the Sabbath day, even if you're not harvesting it. They they probably were overreaching here. But that's not what Jesus hits them on. Jesus actually acknowledges something very, very surprising. Where he says, David did something that was not lawful to do. Do you notice that? He says, he he took the bread, which is not lawful to eat for anyone except the priest alone, and gave it to his companions. So yes, even if they are working on the Sabbath, Even if you think they're doing some form of work on the Sabbath, Pharisees, you need to think about this again because David's example is taking us and showing us something different. You have failed to consider something that the Old Testament makes clear. There's not just a command for the Sabbath, but it makes some other thing clear, which is there's something more important than rigid Sabbath practice. There is something more important than rigid Sabbath practice. David did what was not lawful. Why did he do what was not lawful? Because he and his men had a basic need. They were hungry. And he saw this as an acceptable means of fulfilling that. Yes, it was technically not lawful, but David would have understood that this is something that is okay in the sight of God, even though the general rule is this is only for them, because it's meeting something that is an emergency basic need for them. They were hungry, and the point of the law that God gave was not to let David and his men die of being famished, just so that they could say, well, this bread itself 
remains consecrated. God understood this, and David understood this as well. In uh, Matthew 12, we find a parallel account to this story. And Jesus uh, here says something in addition that gives us a little bit more context for what he's doing in Luke. And he says in Matthew 12, 7, If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. You would not have condemned the innocent. I desire compassion. He's citing from Hosea chapter 6. And he says that God, through Hosea, lays down this principle that there is a priority to things. People over rituals is the priority. It's not to say that it didn't matter. How many times did God get on to Israel for not keeping the Sabbath? How many times did he get on to them for not keeping the feast and for not doing all that they were supposed to do? He sent them into exile because they didn't keep the the Sabbath years on the land. He cares about those things, but he cares about people's needs. And he doesn't say, well, you just have to deal with this. Instead, he desires compassion. He desires showing mercy. This doesn't mean we throw out all commandments, rituals, instructions, things like that. But what he's saying is, you have to understand that there is an order of importance here. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And he says, if you understood what this means, you wouldn't have got on to my disciples because you would have said, you know... They're hungry, and it is perfectly reasonable for them to take these very limited means of just pulling the the grain and eating it. It's not a big deal. In fact, it's a big deal in the form that they need food. So David did this because he was hungry, and his men with him were hungry. And so the Old Testament itself gives these principles from Hosea 6, from 1 Samuel 21, that demonstrate that there are more important things than sticking unswervingly to something like the observance of a day. And the lesson for us is that when we care more about people's obedience to some type of external ritual, even one that might be mentioned in the Bible, than we do about their actual needs, then we're like the Pharisees. We're missing the point. We're putting the practice over the person. Again, I, I want to qualify and caution this in many different ways to say that people will use this to write off legitimate biblical commands and start to say, well, you don't have to do this because all that matters is what people want. And in our age of affirming people and of tolerating people, what is called tolerance, and of just telling people they can do whatever they want, it would be very easy to take this and to just run wild with it. And Jesus doesn't do that at all. Jesus is very quick to still condemn sin, to call sin what it is. There are many, many instructions in the Bible that we should not disregard. But he does say that there are these moments where there is a ritual, there is a sacrificial practice, there is something like this that is lower in priority than the necessary things for someone. And food comes right in that particular list. So Jesus here says, you don't understand The place of the Sabbath and things like this compared to people themselves. Now, he's going to talk about this more a little bit later in chapter 6 when he talks about people saving a life on the Sabbath. This is understood, and in fact, it was even understood by the Pharisees who would pull out an animal to rescue its life on the Sabbath day. So even they would do work on certain occasions. What he's saying is that you're placing too high of a priority on this, and it's not biblical to do so. Now, Jesus could stop here. You understand this, right? He could say, well, we're doing what David did, and that's all you need to know. We have this practice that is justified through Old Testament precedent. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't stop there. The point has been made. I'm not the first one to do this. But Jesus actually shows something more. And the second point he wants to make in responding to this 
is found in verse 5, which is there's something bigger than the law. There's something bigger than Old Testament law or Sabbath law or temple law. And what that something is, is none other than Jesus himself. That is to say, there is someone sovereign over religious practice. There is someone who is sovereign over religious practice. Something bigger than Sabbath keeping and someone sovereign over religious practice. And of course, that person is Jesus. And this answer is even more surprising. Um, He says in verse 5, he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is making almost an outlandish claim here. If it weren't true, it would be cause to put him to death because this is so such a grand statement that he's making. Uh, he's saying, I'm in charge of all of this. He's saying, you're getting onto me for my practice of the Sabbath. You don't understand. I'm the one that made this thing and I set the rules and I'm in charge of this and, and I'm the one that is more important than this. In fact, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he responds to the Pharisees, and he, he demonstrates that he's sovereign over this in several ways. Um, first of all, he cites David's example, but there is a, a clear hint here that David is not just you know, a person who happened to do this in the Old Testament. But he says, David did this with his men. Jesus says, I am doing this, and they say, why do your disciples? Jesus is doing what David did, and not just personally, and he's not saying, hey, David's men did this, and my men did this. Jesus is trying to get them to understand that he is like David. He's following in the steps of David, and as such, he has a certain type of authority, even just as being one who came after David, but not to mention that, he is the actual fulfillment of the promise to David. And so as one writer puts it, quote, Jesus cites David's violation of Torah, of the law, not as an excuse for his action, but as a precedent for it. As a precedent for it. Namely, David did this, and I, if I'm going to be the Messiah who is like David who came before, it actually is appropriate for me to do the same kind of thing as King David did. So he cites David's example to show that he is like him in his authority and in his being special in Israel. Uh, also, in Matthew chapter 12, I mentioned earlier that's a parallel passage to this. Jesus adds these words where he says, Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. And he's not talking about some kind of new technology or new toys or a natural phenomenon. He is talking about himself. He says, You need to understand, you value the Sabbath, you value the temple, but I am. Jesus Christ am greater than any of those things. Those are not unimportant. Those do not get washed away as uh, unimportant. But I am greater than they are is what he says. But then he says these words that we read in verse 5. And he was saying to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. The wording here is emphatic. The very first word of the phrase is the word Lord, And it is intentionally placed there to emphasize this point. Lord of the Sabbath. Lord is of the Sabbath. The Son of Man. Jesus is the Lord. He is not just someone who practices the Sabbath. He's not even just someone who interprets the Sabbath in a way that might be more accurate than the Pharisees. But he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is in charge. He's the Son of Man. 
a title that refers to more than just being born of men and more than just being an ordinary man, but a title that he is using in a growing way to allude to his authority as a unique person. In fact, the Son of Man that was promised in Daniel 7.14 is the culmination of this, that he is the one unique man who is the ruler over all creation and over God's kingdom. But when he is the Son of Man, he has this type of authority that no one else has, including over all of the divine institutions that God has ordained. And so Jesus submits willingly to all of Scripture, but at the same time, he is Lord over all the things that God has instructed. So he doesn't flippantly defy any Sabbath instruction, but at the same time, on the other hand, he puts it in its place. It's not just secondary to human needs, which he's already shown, but it is subservient to him as the Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees were right that the Sabbath mattered. They were concerned that Israel would fail to do what God had said. There's a right concern there to uh, honor God, a right concern to make sure the nation was not uh, disciplined and was not punished again for all that they had done throughout Old Testament history. They had read the Bible. They knew what happened when you don't practice the Sabbath. They knew the problems there. And so they're very fastidious about making sure that not only they, but also the people who are around them kept it. But the problem is then when Jesus showed up, they missed the whole thing. They missed the whole thing. And so it isn't that they uh, understood the Bible rightly and Jesus was violating it. Rather, they misunderstood something. But it isn't just the Pharisees of old who do this. Really, it's anyone who has ever followed their pattern. And that doesn't just mean people who add requirements to the laws. We often call people Pharisees because they add their own legalistic standards to the Bible. And that's true. That's one of the things that they did wrong. But one of the other things that the Pharisees did was that they practiced things from the Bible, some of them accurately to a certain degree, but they rejected placing their faith in Jesus. They acknowledged biblical requirements, the Sabbath day and so on, but they still rejected the Lord of the Sabbath. And this is the case with countless people today, countless people. They come to the Bible and they say, this is biblical morality. This is biblical practice. You know, I need to get my family into church. I need to make sure that I'm doing my job the right way. I need to be treating my family properly. You know, I need to do what's right and get my life together. I need to stop living a life of debauchery or drunkenness or immorality. I need to stop all those kinds of things. And the Bible is a really good guide for that. You know, I need to get back to a Christian standard or even be a good Christian man. I need to do all of that stuff. But what this shows us is that you may be practicing any religious command from the Bible. In fact, all religious commands from the Bible with the exception that you don't respond to faith in Christ. And you find yourself in the same category then as the Pharisees. It doesn't matter how well you keep the morality of the Bible. It doesn't matter how well you practice these things or how much you care or how much you're going and trying to convince other people to do this or even to worship the right God. It doesn't matter how much you combat atheism or how much you combat wrong theology. None of that stuff matters if you don't respond to Jesus Christ. And if you do these things but you don't put faith in him, you're missing the whole boat. There's, there's nothing. You've missed the whole thing. This is what Jesus is saying. If you're practicing the Sabbath, but you don't respond to me, then you've misunderstood what the Sabbath is all about. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
How ironic would it be to practice the Sabbath so carefully every single week and to miss the one who is the Lord of it? It wouldn't make sense at all. And yet that's exactly what they did, and that's what too many people do today. All the church practices, all the biblical practices, all the morality, everything that has to do with this, and yet they don't humble themselves and put their faith in Jesus Christ. So then the Pharisees did miss the, the idea of what it means to practice um, the Sabbath day properly. They did add their own requirements, but Jesus is pointing out more here. They, they misunderstood the benefit that was intended by God to bless people by the Sabbath. But even more importantly and most prominently, they misunderstood who Jesus was. And I hope that's not a mistake that any of you make after this morning. Some of you may have walked in here making that mistake. I certainly hope that you don't walk out making that mistake. Because Jesus is not only Lord of the Sabbath, but he really is the only one who can make our way to God. He is the only one who provides us with the ability to get right with God. And we need to do this. And the coming of Christ into the world indicated for us, uh, not that there was a problem with everybody else, but that there was a problem with everyone including us. And that we needed someone to come and to do what he did. Not just to teach us, as if we didn't need to know everything, or as if we already knew everything, and, or we were deficient in some areas and needed him to teach us certain things, uh, but to do something for us that we couldn't do. And that something is to go to the cross on our behalf. We're going to wrap up here for Luke 6, and we'll move now into our time of communion. And um, as we do this, I want to just consider, um, I want to consider the, the uh, response of the Pharisees to Jesus, which is a little bit of a preview of where we will go when we finish up next time. They were unhappy with Jesus. Verse 11, they discussed what they might do to him. They were filled with rage. They were angry at him. And ultimately, what did they do? They put him to death. But as we understand from the Bible and from Acts chapter 2, that this is not the whole story. So if you want to look there, there are a couple of verses I want to draw your attention to. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the people of Israel are gathered there from all the nations. They've come to have this feast a few weeks after Jesus has been crucified and then raised from the dead. And the Holy Spirit is poured out and Peter stands up to preach when he has their attention. And he says this, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men. A summary statement of how Jesus was crucified. The Jews who surrounded Jesus in his day, stirred on by the religious leaders of the time, nailed Jesus to a cross, not themselves literally doing it, but by persuading the Gentiles, led by Pilate, to do this. They put him on the cross. Why? For the same reason that the Pharisees hated him, because he confronted them. He said that he was the authority over them. He said that they needed to repent, and they didn't want to. He said that he was the only way of salvation, and they didn't like that. And so they put him to death. They had the ability to do that, for as many people today 
would like to get Jesus out of their lives. But at the same time, observe the mercy of God. Here is Peter preaching to these people. You killed him. You had him put to death by the hands of godless men. And yet, what does he say? Verse 38. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for what? The forgiveness of your sins. The forgiveness of sins for killing the Lord of the Sabbath? For killing the anointed of God? For putting him to death? Yes, forgiveness that is even that great. Some of you may struggle with the sins that you've committed and say, can God really forgive that? Can he really forgive what I've done, all that I've done? If God can forgive people for putting Jesus to death, he can forgive anything that you've done. And Jesus' death is the means of doing that, to provide the way of salvation. He was the sacrifice, and he is the finished sacrifice. He died, as Hebrews 10 tells us, once for all. One sacrifice for all time is the way that we are made holy and righteous in God's sight. So the answer, if you have not believed, is to repent and believe, to turn and to put your trust in Christ. And for those this morning of us who have done this, this is an opportunity to remember what Jesus' death is, that it happened, why it happened, and what it means for us. So that you can come to him, not that partaking of the bread, not partaking of the cup, means that you are at that moment washing away or wiping away your sins, but it is a reminder that tells you once again that your sins have been dealt with and that you can go before God with a clear conscience and that you stand before him righteous, not on the basis of anything you've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. So we're going to uh, partake of communion together. Um, if, if you guys have uh, trays and would like to bring those down and pass out the elements to anyone who needs them, if you can, as they come down, uh, if you could just lift up your hand and let them know that, that you need that. And uh, I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 11. Thank you. And I uh, would like to ask if you guys can, um, if Philip and uh, Brian would mind to come up as we pray for the bread and the the cup here in a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, tells that he has, uh, he's giving them a practice that was, that was given by the Lord, instituted by the Lord, and is distributed to all the churches, not only at that time, but something that we are to practice even here and now. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Philip, if you would pray for the bread, please. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we have where we can get together and remember what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that he sacrificed himself, that his body was broken, that he died so that we could be saved, so that our sins could be forgiven. And Father, I pray that as we eat this bread, that we would be reminded of that and that we would renew our minds and Think about how we should act and think appropriately. We pray this in Christ's name. And so they gave thanks. He gave thanks. He broke it. 
He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together and remember him. If you would pray for the cup as we partake. As we continue to pray, Father, for and, and thank you for the, the grace supplied to us in Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for the blood of Christ. This blood that washes us clean. It makes us as white as snow that not only covers our sin, but removes it and takes it away. Father, we're thankful for the shed blood of Christ. Without it, there would be no forgiveness of sin. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God who shed his blood so that we might be made right, made righteous in your sight. We thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin. And we thank you for the privilege of remembering that again today and proclaiming to everyone else, this is who we are. We are yours because of Jesus. And we thank you in Jesus' name. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that is our, that is our message, is it not? the death of the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes. His death, his resurrection, and of course his second coming, which we look forward to. Let's uh, stand as we sing one final song.